You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti reporting about the American Bar Association's National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services, which took place at Stanford Law School in Stanford, California. What you're about to hear are two panel interviews covering the Challenges to Innovation speaking event, which featured three presenters, including Mark Britton, the founder and CEO of AVO, Professor of Law, Jillian Hatfield from University of Southern California, and Professor Marshall Van Alstyne from Boston University. We now cut to my interview with Professor Hatfield and Professor Van Alstyne. Well, I'm a professor of law and professor of economics at University of Southern California in Los Angeles, uh, although I went to uh, Stanford for both my PhD in economics and my law degree here, so I feel like I'm back home. And I work primarily in the areas of the economics of legal systems and uh, legal regulation. Professor Van Alstyne. So I'm a professor at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University and the Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT. The kinds of things we study are the economics of information, the economics of networks. How do you create value? How does information technology affect productivity? Or what are the business models around information? So those are the kinds of things that we work on, both from a you know, commercial and technological perspective. Okay. Well, now you were just on a panel discussion, and uh, one of your co-panelists, Mark Britton, he's going to join us later, but the title of your presentation was called Challenges to Innovation. That's right. So one of you can volunteer, but I wanted to get a 50,000-foot view of what that was about, and then we get into more specifics. Well, I think what we were trying to uh, address both was what are the prerequisites for innovation? What does it take to get innovation? Um, and then what are the challenges or potential obstacles to innovation in particular in the, in the legal area? So another thing we looked at is what are the most successful innovation ecosystems? If you look at platforms, for example, how the Apple uh, Android ecosystem and the Apple and the Android ecosystems have evolved to create app economies, how Salesforce has come up um, you know, in the uh, ERP space. These innovation ecosystems are very successful at creating new content to address existing or even new needs. And so we think we can bring those to legal profession as well. Okay. Now, we tour around the country and we get a lot of uh, speaking events that talk about this reluctance to innovate, this reluctance to incorporate technology. And so I wanted to ask you, why do you think the legal profession is so reluctant at times to to innovate, to adopt new methods and new technologies? I think there's a, a lot of desire for innovation in legal systems, and it depends on who you're talking to. So we can talk about the legal profession, we talk about lawyers, we can talk about judges who are enormously burdened, we can talk about the existing client base, both the large corporate uh, and those who are able to afford services, and then we can talk about people who recognize there's just millions, hundreds of millions of people who can't. Uh, really afford any kind of, of legal help. Uh, so I think that there's a growing recognition, there's a very large problem, and it's certainly the point that I emphasize, emphasize in our panel today, pretty much every time I talk on this subject, is the solutions the legal profession has been talking about to the access problem, those hundreds of millions who can't afford uh, really any form of legal help. Uh, the solutions the legal profession talks about are legal aid and pro bono, all of both of which are, are very important, but the scale of the problem is completely out of proportion to those solutions, and so there is a real need for innovation. So I think that's where the interest is coming from. Do you think that's a, a matter of the legal services are just too expensive for the average person uh, to afford, or even the below average in, in, in terms of income to afford? Is that, is that what we're talking about here when you're talking about access to justice? Yes, it okay. costs too much, costs too and much. it costs too much, and it costs too much primarily because of the business model that 
uh, professional regulation requires of legal services. So the types of things that Marshall uh, was talking about with platforms, which are essential, we were seeing so much innovation. In order to have those in the legal system, we have to change the way we regulate it. So let me add two thoughts to that. One of them was the first, uh, the difficulty of why innovation might have been challenging within the legal profession. One is that folks are so good, and they've been trained to, identify and mitigate risk. What in economics, often what you try to do is to optimize risk rather than mitigate risk. We know from finance, for example, that reward is often proportional to the amount of risk you're willing to bear. And so it's a shift in goal from mitigation of risk to optimization of risk and a different change of mindset. Another element about platforms is that we may be able to serve interests way out on the long tail in niche markets. To give you a, a metaphor for it, you know, Netflix recommends these individual or often esoteric movies to folks of specific tastes. And they're able to cater to these needs that are way out on the long tail of innovation. Platforms can be, do the same thing. People with specific legal needs that might not have been able to afford it can still be served by a platform in a niche market uh, at a lower cost. If you look at things like LegalZoom or Rocket Lawyer, for example, are becoming expert at serving markets out on that long tail. Now, we talked a little bit uh, before the interview about an innovational <clears throat> ecosystem. And so um, in this, and, and we had a, a previous interview that was talking about some of the paradigms in uh, attorney thinking when it comes to these innovations and innovations across the board, innovations for access of justice, just like you mentioned. That's the second time we've heard that must be a magic word for, uh, for this event. But uh, uh, access, um, they also talked about innovations in technology, but the paradigm in thinking was, was one of the central uh, points that we talked about in a previous one. But you were talking about, uh, Professor Van Alstyne, the innovation ecosystem and what that takes. Can you explain that concept to us? Sure. Well, lots of organizations. Organizations tend to look inside for uh, innovation. So traditionally, firms and large corporations would have looked at the R&D lab. You know, AT&T of Bell Labs is one of the world-class organizations of that. Intel has a huge, phenomenal uh, innovation uh, internal lab. Open innovation is starting to capture ideas from third parties outside the organization. Intel now gets huge benefits from external innovation. The USB standard that we all use on our laptops, for example, was created by a consortium of external corporations. The immense value that has made Apple Corporation the most valuable firm in the world at present is created by the ecosystem of people who have brought value and content to iTunes. We can try to do the same thing in law. We can try to make it possible for folks to add new algorithms, to add new forms of knowledge objects, to add new forms of legal service conveyed through platforms such as LegalZoom, Rocket Lawyer, and other analogous business ecosystems in ways that have been borrowed from technology and simply ported over to legal services. So beyond new platforms and new delivery mechanisms for law, you know, the services and apps that connect the client or potential client with a new attorney, um, you know, services that uh, there's also kind of do-it-yourself law with a little bit of help. What other aspects can lawyers engage in actively to create that ecosystem that you're talking about, an ecosystem for innovation within the practice of law? Well, we was just speaking with a couple of lawyers who are launching a platform in, I think it's Denver, uh, and they're reducing the overhead dramatically by inviting lawyers to become in almost freelance. So the billing is being handled by the platform. So the client solicitation is even being handled by the platform. The platform is starting to assume, assume a matching role to help identify people with expertise and problems who have that need for that expertise. Using a platform to do the match, using the platform to absorb the overhead. I think, if I'm not mistaken, a law firm traditionally has 60-40 payroll labor costs to infrastructure overhead costs. 
platform can bring that down to 80-20. Uh, and you, so you can actually get a greater proportion of the share of the value going over to the attorneys themselves. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really important to understand about what's very distinctive about the legal space is that the regulatory structure we have in place now requires that anybody who's providing legal help to the to the public has to be trained as a lawyer, financed by lawyers, and, and in an organization owned by lawyers. So, for example, LegalZoom, Rocket Lawyer, uh, UpCounsel, the, the types of uh, platforms that Marshall's mentioning, if we want those platforms in place, so they ought, we want lawyers involved in those platforms, currently they have to be owned by lawyers or they have to be very carefully crafted so that they minimize their actual, frankly, helpfulness um, and minimize their role. So uh, the type of platform Marshall mentioned, the uh, where there's billing handled and client solicitation, let's say advertising done by done by the platform. What you'd like that done by is um, an organization that is uh, as a diversified capital, so that they can bear risk, they can experiment, they can market, they can build brand, and you want a contract with the lawyers, either they're employed by that platform or the type that I think Marshall was thinking about where uh, they're in contractual relationship with the, with the platform. You need a contract where you can share revenues and profits so that both sides of the equation, the platform and the uh, providers who are hooking into that platform, face incentives uh, and reward. Our rules on fee sharing don't allow that. So that uh, LegalZoom, for example, can provide legal help, but does it by providing a legal insurance plan that has a subscription price, and they can't participate in any of the value that's created by the lawyer beyond being available and uh, you know the monthly subscription fee. So Jillian's exactly right. I think one of the things that makes this feasible is to design a governance mechanism on the platform that creates and divides the wealth among all ecosystem participants. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that these platforms do uh, to help create again these wonderful freelance labor markets. Let me delve into that a little bit. So are you suggesting that uh, ownership of whether it's an entity or a group of individuals working together that provide legal services, so this entity, however it's constructed, are you saying that we should move towards a model where you don't necessarily have to be an attorney owning this? And in a lot of ways, it'll provide more capital to the legal industry. And so is that something that you guys are advocating for? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. Um, <laughs> if you take a look at other professions, another good one that's which certified is uh, the medical profession. If you take a look at platforms like Patients Like Me, a lot of the benefit of psychological advice is even being provided by other people with the very condition that's suffering from it. So you may be able to get wonderful insights, not just from the practitioner, but even from the parties who have been involved or suffering from the condition uh, and can provide their shared experience. Okay, well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And at the risk of being called, I think it's called a Ludite. Is that how you pronounce it? Is it Ludite? <laughs> uh, I had a recent interview with George Beaton from Beaton Capital, and he was uh, talking about the Australian model, which has now moved, uh, moved to the UK. And so this is the model where you do have third-party ownership of entities that provide legal services. And so, uh, and he made a great argument, you know, and it's one that I would definitely carry through to financial markets and other types of industry. I do have a concern, and my concern is that, you know, the practice of law because of its profound importance in our society, that fabric, those rules, that, that social contract that hold us together, it's a special industry. And so how do you, what safeguards do you build in, in an environment like that where third parties are owning a legal enterprise providing legal services? How do you keep it ethical? 
how do you hold personal responsibility to those that are trained specifically to provide like a doctor you know in the medical field lawyers are trained to provide legal services and help to people in need how do you protect that you regulate it okay uh you so there's a lot of things that, that protect quality that's what we're talking about. There's a lot of things that protect quality. In most cases, if you look at you know, your, your iPhone in your, your pocket, what creates quality there is the incentive for that company to produce a good quality product and retain its market. And it does so in the face of competition from Samsung and Nokia and Ericsson and all the others, right? It's protecting quality. So, so that you have most, we rely for quality in most settings on market incentives. And we regulate most markets. So we have lots of rules about how mines are built and how traffic, uh, you know, whether or not the battery in our, micro, uh, our, our iPhone is going to blow up. We have lots of regulation, no shortage of regulation. We need lots of other solutions for regulation. Uh, we can license those entities that are providers. And frankly, I'd rather see a large entity that risks losing a big chunk of a market because it's providing uh, low quality, it's engaged in fraud, it's got poor, it's violating ethical rules about confidentiality, for example. I'd much rather focus on uh, licensing and monitoring that smaller set of larger entities that face a bigger, you know, my, if I'm a regulator and I threaten to take that license, that's a much bigger threat than, you know, I'm going to go to, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands of small firm practitioners and one by one identify where they've fallen down on the job. So, so let me reverse your question and okay. ask it back of you. Sure. Why wouldn't it be the case that the exact same question would apply to medicine? Why wouldn't it be the case that only doctors could finance medical companies? Only doctors could own medical companies. Only doctors can perform the services. Now, the last one, you'd expect, of course, doctors to provide the services, but of course others ought to be able to finance and own. That's just capital markets. That's what we should do, and that's what would create more economic value. I have an answer to that. Um, I have an answer to that, and you know, I, I have uh, some some medical uh, professionals in my family, and we talk about this. And it, so, a lawyer, you know, interviewing his parents who work in the medical industry, we have some debates about that, and we talked about uh, this third party ability to bring money into the equation. And so, I guess when it comes to medicine, you know, we rely on a professional's judgment over their years of experience and their specialized training in the field they're in. And so I guess one of my concerns when you have a third party pressure coming in, a, a, a financial one. Now, there are financial pressures to do your job right, but there's also financial pressures to do things you don't want to do in your professional judgment that are good, say, for the entity's bottom line, but maybe not the best in the, you know, for the practice of medicine. So how do you respond to that? How do you, how do you guard against that risk when you're looking to the, the judgment of an individual to make a call that may not be in line with the, the entity, the hospital, say, their bottom line, but really in the best interest of the patient. So I, I love Jillian's answer, but let me take it even a step further. I think the proper response to that is A, regulation, but B, we know from economics the way to solve risk problems of that type is to place the risk on the party most able to mitigate that are most able to finance that risk. So in this case, you would put the risk back on the parties who are making those decisions. So if it's the case that the financial entity is putting pressure for the, a different decision to be made, then they should bear the risk of that kind of decision. We've known this, again, it's classic economics, but you can create better marketplaces if you do this overall. It's also the case, how are you going to bring 
better services down? How are you going to create legal services for the needy uh, if the prices don't, in fact, come down? Not everyone is going to be able to afford $200 an hour for basics of landlord-tenant disputes, for basics of just issuing a will. A lot of these things ought to be contractually very straightforward to do. I do think that these markets will, have, will offer these solutions, but we need to enable them. We need to make them possible. I think it's really important to emphasize, yes, there's some really, really important things that we do in law. Um, But, uh, you know, we live in a very thick legal environment. You can't turn around, do anything without interfacing with the, the legal environment. And it's also really important how our highways are designed and our cars are built and our medical services are provided and how accurate our accounts are and our financial statements. You know, it's a totally pervasive, totally standard problem. How do you create incentives for people not to cut the corners? And you suggested maybe we would view you as a Luddite earlier. I won't accuse you of being a Luddite, but, you know, it's a very early 20th century view of the corporation, the rapacious corporation that's going to the shareholder who is going to strip out, you know, and force people to create, you know, shoddy food products, poison the food system. Um, You know, think about what's happening in China where we have concerns about the level of health and safety regulation there. That's the pre-regulatory world. We don't don't rely, uh, we, we, we rely on a combination of the market incentives, Brands, Yelp. We can't have Yelp if we don't have corporations that have large enough brands um, and regulation. And I really think we don't want to miss that point. Do you know, to pick up on Yelp, the (laughs) New York Board of Health is starting to identify food outbreaks of salmonella and other diseases based on Yelp ratings. Really? So rather than having to send your inspectors randomly around to places where you might or might not spot it, you use Yelp ratings. You've created a marketplace for this. It's a wonderful innovation that's actually improving health and service. There's a a social pressure to to oblige as well, I think, within Yelp, because you don't want that one-star rating. So one of the things you want to talk to Mark uh, Britton about with Avil, with the effort to develop a rating system uh, for lawyers, and you can talk to him about the significant constraints his platform operates under. But again, just think about that. It's so hard. Most of the providers for ordinary folks are solo and small firm practitioners. That's 40 to 50 percent of the profession. I, as a very sophisticated member of this community, find it almost impossible to figure out who should I get in touch with to handle in a small estate problem that's come up or uh, we get emails all the time and, and along the law faculty of you know a friend thinks she has a discrimination claim somebody's upset with the way the plumber did the work can you suggest and it's extremely difficult to locate anyone and what's the big how do I know how good they are I don't have any idea how good they are how would I find that out I can find a restaurant in uh, Budapest looking on for Yelp reviews, but I find it really hard living in Los Angeles to say, how can I figure out who would be a terrific person at a good price to give me what I need in an estate plan or to help me deal with the problem at my children's school? Well, I think uh, both of you addressed my devil's advocacy very well there, so I appreciate you letting me uh, play that role. I want to move on to uh, something we talked about before the interview, the, the fears of existing lawyers. Uh, when it comes to innovations in the in the legal profession. And so uh, you guys um, obviously have some opinions on this, but I'd like you to share with our listeners how are fears affecting innovations in the in the legal profession right now? 
And what are those fears, actually? So, well, I would share those fears, uh, to be honest. We have them in other areas. You know, in academia, for example, the massive open online courses are threatening to replace professors. Uh, there's a joke going around that the academics will be writing the lectures and Morgan Freeman will be delivering them. <laughs> so uh, I, I really do worry that that's what will be happening. Uh, so in, in many ways, I, I do share those fears. But I think the solutions to those are, um, A, be good at what you do, and B, differentiate. Do something that's distinctive. Uh, you... Uh, specialize in a way that then works uh, to your advantage. So folks, when you need someone who's good at a particular type of dispute or you're good at a particular type of legal theory or intellectual property, you're the best at what you do. Um, you also need to be good at collaboration, I think, so that when problems are too big for an individual, you've got a reputation for working well with others and playing nice. And I think those are the ways to deal with some of those fears. So Marshall talked about earlier the availability of the long tail when you have platforms and so on. And I want to emphasize it's a big, fat tail. Um, it's like half, you know, half of the demand curve or more that's basically been chopped off because we're, we're stuck at really about a minimum $200 an hour rate, which is not producing the $400,000 a year income for lawyers that you think. It's producing about $60,000, $65,000 a year. There's a huge volume of people who don't have access to any kind of legal help. I like to say it's, uh, you know, it's like we've said in, in the automobile market, you know, BMWs are incredibly safe, and they've got all the navigation, and they've got the little indicator that'll tell you if you're trying to change lanes when somebody's there and so on. Nobody should be required to drive a car that isn't made like a BMW. And we have everybody in our legal profession <laughs> fighting over providing that BMW, fighting over that slice. And I want to say, you know what? It would be fantastic if we could all afford a BMW. It would be fantastic if you could figure out how to sell that BMW for later. But don't you think there's a huge market for people who would like a car? Because right now they don't have cars. And the fighting is over, providing for a very small market right now. There's a massive unmet need or as we should probably talk as economists, latent demand. It's, it's, it's market ready for opportunities, phenomenal. We live in very complicated legal environments. I want to know why I don't have an app, that when I get a document, I'm an ordinary folk, maybe I've fallen behind on my credit card payments, I'm getting documents, documents, documents in the mail, I think they're a bunch of garbage. Why can't I take a photo with my phone, upload it to one of the platforms, and for five bucks have somebody tell me, actually, that's the one that really matters. If you don't show up at that time, let's help. I've read it. I've, my, my, my machine has read it. My AI system has read it. And we're going to tell you, that's the one to pay attention to. That's the one you've got to show up. No excuses. There will be no excuses. If you do not show up on that date, you will uh, have your wages garnished and your, your bank account potentially emptied. There was an observation made by another, another lawyer in the um, presentation earlier. There's a very simple shift in mindset enabled by the platform. Too many lawyers are engaged in trying to get 10 hours out of one single client, and there aren't that many of them. And it's much, much easier to try to get uh, 10 hours from 10 different clients. Plus, if the platform will handle the overhead for all the others, you might even be able to get an 11th and 12th client uh, and do better off. Plus, it's a win for the client side. You know, the dozens of clients that couldn't get a single hour of legal advice previously now can. So it actually can be a win for the entire ecosystem. We hope you enjoyed this first panel interview. Up next, Monica Bay, fellow at Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics, and former Legal Talk Network host of Law Technology Now, interviews Mark Britton, the founder and CEO of Avo. Take it away, Monica. 
Mark and I go back a very, very long time we because do. we've both been very, very passionate about how do we do delivery of legal services at an affordable rate to the folks who make too much money to be able to go on the, the existing options but still can afford it. And studies com- consistently say that between 80 and 85% of Americans cannot get, and they don't even know how to find, competent legal services. So in my career at ALM, where I worked at the recorder and covered the bar and then took over law technology news in New York, this has been a constant issue that I've reported on for 30 years. And one of the things that has happened that I think has changed, I call it an earthquake, is that earlier in 2014, the ABA really, in my opinion, held froze over because the ABA and the organized bar were so against uh, any kind of self-help in any way, shape, or form, and they now are in a partnership with uh, Rocket Lawyer, one of the five or six of of these organizations that are out doing self-help and lawyer working. So it's been an exciting trip, and Mark, I would love it if you'd tell us a little bit from your perspective on how has this ABA partnership helped, as you put it in Law Technology News, all boats rise when the water goes up. Sure. Well, I think, you know, the the shift that you talk about, you speak to it as being an earthquake. I think often as lawyers, we spend a lot of time thinking about how the lawyers are being affected by different decisions. And when you have so many people that, you know, 50% of high, mid to high income, 85% of you add low income in there, when they're avoiding lawyers, well, something's broken. And it's not really what we think or what we're worried about. It's what our target audience needs and what they're worried about. And so what I've really noticed about this dialogue over the last decade is people are really stepping back. And you see it here at this conference, people saying, wait a minute, what does the consumer need? How are they hurting? How are they struggling? And how can we solve those needs? And that's a, that's a real big shift in the conversation, and it's an exciting one. Very much so. And there's a growing number of folks who are offering various services. Uh, in case our listeners may not be familiar with your organization, tell us a little bit about how it works. Sure. Uh, so Avo is a marketplace where we help consumers on the one hand get more information and better guidance than they've ever uh, had access to regarding their legal issues. And on the other side, we get great lawyers more business. Um, And so we're just, you know, when we started, so many of the companies, again, they were focused on what was good for lawyers. And they were, they had a yellow pages model where they would put the lawyer out there and make him look beautiful or her look beautiful. and th- But it's just a paid advertisement. It was not really building ens- any sort of a relationship or a conversation. And we wanted to build a community where the consumer could come in and converse with lawyers, get to know them. I mean, in a way, we're a little bit like Match.com. I mean, I joke, but it's a it's a fair analogy in that we're taking that needy consumer, putting them together with the needy lawyer, we're getting them talking, and then that's how you get more lawyers. You get more consumers educated and more lawyers hired. And so now, you know, here we are. We're coming up on eight years since we launched. 
Uh, we're closing in on 10 million visits a month, and we have 210,000 lawyers who use Avvo as a marketing platform. So it's really cool. I mean, every five seconds, someone is getting legal advice on Avvo. And that's, that's a size, and those are numbers that the legal profession's never really seen before. And among some of the other folks, obviously NOLO was a very early adopter in helping with self-help books. Sure. And there's a Rocket Lawyer. There's a LegalZoom. Um, I'm probably forgetting some of the there's others. Lawyers.com. Lawyers. Fine Law. Fine all law. sorts of companies doing interesting things. So there's a lot of folks out there. And, and typically on these, and correct me if I'm wrong, users can come on they can get forms. They can not just get forms and documents and help. Some of them can just get the form they need and create it themselves in their audios. Other ones can actually get lawyers to help them with it or proof them with it. And I'm sure that every one of these folks has a slightly different approach on it. But in all of these, I think the common denominator is it's reasonably priced. You can get a document for a lot, and many of the ones are free, and some of them have very modest costs. And for a lot of the, for the average family, they might need the most, just a basic will. They have a baby. They might need to do something like that. Their mom has to go into a assisted living. They need to get health, health type of documents. These very everyday kinds of things that if they try to get a, in a traditional legal thing might cost them thousands of dollars. Right. So tell us how this has changed now with with the attitude there. I mean, there were two major things that the organized bar would fight. One was they were really strict about lawyer advertising. Mm. I literally sat in a meeting for three hours on a hot July day when the State Bar of California argued on what the size of the font that said advertising enclosed was going to be on the envelope if you dared send send someone a brochure about your organization and this was years ago but it but and the flip side of it is a whole nother group of folks were so paranoid about Un, they call it ULP, uh, yeah, unauthorized practice, unauthorized practice, to such an extreme that they were scaring off people. Mm-hmm. It seems today that everybody is finally realizing: wait a minute, with the internet and technology and everything else, we need to rethink this because there's now a win-win, and the ability for lawyers to have a way to get to, as you beautifully described, to get to know the potential clients mm-hmm. and. The, form, the formulas vary a little bit as to how they do it, but why is this such a turning point? Tell us a little bit about where you see this is going. Well, I think, I think the conversation is evolving, but I don't think we've turned the corner yet. Okay. Uh, from a state bar perspective, for a number of lawyers, uh, they are still, the advertising restrictions in a lot of states are, are challenging. And I flat out believe that they actually hurt lawyers and keep lawyers from being able to tell their story effectively. I mean, LegalZoom claims that they have 70% aided awareness, okay? So if you ask people if they know LegalZoom, 7 out of 10 will say that they do. The only way that they've gotten to that is through advertising, yet lawyers can't advertise in a lot of the similar ways that LegalZoom can. And so as new avenues, as, and, and it's really not just new avenues opening, it's consumers saying, I'm not getting help. I can't go to lawyers. I can't afford them. I don't know what they do. They're scary. They wear black robes. Like, I just don't even know. I, I can't. 
I can't interact. I don't know how to do it. So they go to other companies, non-lawyer avenues, non-lawyer companies. So the, the advertising restrictions are a challenge, still very much alive and well. And then also UPL. I mean, UPL is, um, you know, I do a lot of work with a UPL committee in Washington State. And there are many lawyers that want UPL, like they never want that to go away. Yeah. And so the beauty of conferences like this is you get the bar leaders. You get thought leaders from the industry to come in and say, you know, UPL, it, it's actually hurting us, right? And I talked about this in my speech, and I, I can get to that, but how UPL is hurting us or how marketing restrictions are hurting us. And I think it brings a different vector, a different point of view, so that, you know, they're constantly surrounded lawyers with with lawyers who might not be thinking as big, and they can step back and go, wow, as I look at this in a different direction, you might be right. Maybe we do yeah. need to change some of these things. And I'd yet, like- to play devil's advocate on that too, though, during that same period that I was at the recorder reporting on this was when the State Bar of California had probably the worst crisis in its history because they had literally closets full of complaints about lawyers that weren't being processed Mm -hmm. and it almost destroyed the California Bar. So I think one of the the things we have to look at and, and our mutual friend Charlie Moore wrote a wonderful story for Law Technology News in the same issue you were in talking about we have to look at how regulations can both help and hurt. And he used a really good analogy about Uber and about uh, Airbnb. I live in New York City. Airbnb in New York is illegal. Mm. And I think one of the challenges as we move forward, which he articulated very beautifully, is look at the compare San Francisco to New York and like at Uber, we asked, we polled the uh, audience at Code, at the Codex conference, how many people have used Uber? 90% of, of the group raised their hand. If you had asked in New York, it probably would have been a handful of people. So that's, I think, an area where the Bay Area is going to be, a, and the West Coast is going to be a big leader on. But the regulation goes both ways. So I think it's done a lot of damage, but I think it's also has some genuine protection uh, aspects to it, and that's that's kind of the yin and yang that's that I think we're going through right now is you know how how do you get these so that these various concerns get addressed, but the fact that they are actually considering this now I think is huge, but that's my point of view from thirty feet up. You're in it every day. What do you think should happen in the next year or two? Where are we going with this from your point of view? Yeah, regulation, it is something that there's, there's good and bad in everything. I think, though, one thing that I see lawyers and Supreme Courts and bars struggle with is that they'd like to create a one-size-fits-all regulation that is top-down. And personally, I just think it's impossible. The reason, you know, so much of innovation, and when you talk about startups or entrepreneurship, it is all sorts of small companies that are attacking the same problem, and they're given a system to get funded and have the time to try to to develop their ideas. But, you know, some of these ideas are bad ideas, and some of the actors are bad actors, and some of them won't survive for different reasons. But there are at least thousands of them attacking the problem. And over time, the best idea is the smartest people. It rises to the top. That's the bottoms-up approach. And I really don't think any time you're trying to regulate, you must let the innovation take place. 
and you must let those, you know, thousand points of light bubble up. And then you can regulate on top of that once you understand how the marketplace works. But to the extent that you're going to try to guess what's good and what's bad before the consumer or the target audience speaks and the different companies have succeeded or not, I think it's a bit of a fool's errand or at a minimum, it is incredibly hard. So I I love that we're talking about at this conference how we can innovate better. And I mean, I think the getting rid of some of these regulations like UPL or the marketing restrictions that we talked about earlier, I think are really important for freeing things up to allow those thousands to come in and have that tournament to understand the best ideas. Where do you think we should be in five years? That is a great question. You know, I'm when I listen to all of the great ideas that are percolating at this conference, I can't help but wonder how many of them I will see come to fruition in my career. Mm-hmm. Because in legal, things take a very long time. Now, so where I think things should be in five years is going to be a fraction of where I think they actually will be. It is a very fragmented regulatory market. We are very risk averse as lawyers. Things move slowly. So, but in five years, here are some things that I'd love to see. I would like to see, I want to go directly at UPL. We've brought it up a couple of times. I would love to see UPL relaxed so that we can bring in some of the best and the brightest. We can bring in uh, without, I'm not even being silly when I say, let's bring in the Mark Zuckerbergs, let's bring in the Bill Gates, let's bring in the Jeff Bezoses, and have them be excited about investing in legal because there's a reward in there for them. They're, they're not restricted. They're not said, hey, keep out because only lawyers can have the economic interest. Let's let, let's re- I would love to see the advertising restrictions relax so that lawyers can tell their story. They can talk about all of the problems that they solve. They can call themselves a specialist. If they have a website that is too colorful, it doesn't have to have disclaimers all over it. I, yeah. Let them operate just like all these other great companies that are out there and servicing their customers. And I think one of the things that's going to be crucial to get there, because I'm on the same page with you on this, is they are going to have to rethink this ridiculous rule that says you cannot have a law firm and have anyone be an owner of it. Yeah, that's part that, of the UPL, That for is sure. this whole thing about, oh, a non-lawyer might not be able to understand. There's ways to work around that because right now, as a lot of people have pointed out, it's a position where there's a built-in to the structure of the firm that the senior partners are not going to be motivated to do any kind of expensive project, particularly in tech, because it's going to come directly out of their pocket. And Dan Katz talks about this all the time, this concept of, and some firms are quietly doing it. You know, uh, Sedgwick has some standalone entities. And he actually gave a solution on how to do that without violating the, the ABA rule, but we're kind of getting off grid a little bit here. But I think until they do that and that they can get folks and get people who are C-level and whatever not have to worry about, oh, we, you know, well, we're not going to be able to pay them enough because 
We're not allowed to give them. Uh, Texas right now says you can't use the word uh, CIO. You can't have officer in your title. Mm -hmm. But we could talk all day on this, Mark. That was great. This has been another edition of Special Reports. We hope you enjoyed this series of interviews. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.